Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm Lori LeBay, the host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks. We are an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. At our core, we believe collaboratively we can win this battle against dementia. I know we're making a big difference, and I want to thank all of our supporters um, that come to our multiple platforms as we were just honored and named number one influencer on the Internet regarding Alzheimer's by ShareCare and Dr. Oz. And believe me, I know we couldn't have done it without you. So thank you all so much, and I hope you continue your support here. This is such important work that we're doing together. By joining forces and sharing our knowledge and just having those everyday conversations about life with dementia, we're going to be able to remove the stigmas and the myths attached to memory loss, and we can help those in the trenches get back their lives and let them live with purpose. Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs of this disease. Again, not just the myths and stigmas, that stagnate us as a world. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we want to raise awareness by giving voice to everyone, those afflicted with memory loss, their care partners, both family and professionals, as well as advocates supporting the cause. By working together and sharing stories about living with memory loss, we're going to give hope. No longer can we let this world be driven by fear, and together, we can teach people how to live with this disease, not as it. We truly hope that you'll check out our website, www.alzheimerspeaks.com. There you'll have access to all of our platforms, the blog, the resource website, the radio show, the YouTube channel, um, many free tools, and so much more. Our channel expert is Rick Phelps, and I'm not sure if Rick's going to be able to join us today or not. Rick actually lives with early-onset Alzheimer's disease, known as EOAD, and he pops into our show when his schedule allows. Rick was diagnosed back in June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group in virtual time out on the Internet. In fact, they just had their first convention, and about 40 people met in New York, and they were absolutely amazed at the bond that they had created online, and once they met, I guess it was quite, quite powerful. So 
So if you haven't checked out Memory People, please do so. It's a closed group, but it's open to everyone interested in learning more about the disease. Just put in Memory People when you're on Facebook in the search bar and ask to join. I also want to just uh, tell everybody that if you want to join the conversation, that's what this show is really about. Again, we don't want to just be talking to you. We want to talk with you. We want to hear your ideas and your thoughts and your questions. So please utilize the chat box, um, sign in with Facebook, and then utilize your chat box, and I'll be able to field your questions or comments. Or you can always call into the show live. And that number is 714-364-4754. That's 714-364-4757. Oops, I said the wrong number there. It's 4757. Sorry about that. Um, And then again, just push one. And when there is a break in the conversation, I will definitely pull you into the show. Now, last week we had an absolutely marvelous show with Dr. Alan Power, uh, who is the author of um, Dementia or Drugs, uh, Dementia, I know, I forgot the name of the title. Here I go, and I don't have it right in front of me. Uh, Dementia Beyond Drugs and Judy Berry of Lakeview Ranch. And they really talked a lot about shifting our culture um, with dementia care. And today we're going to carry on that conversation. And our first guest is Alan Caspi. And he um, has worked as a nurse's aide, a social worker, a trainer, a consultant in special care units in nursing homes for seniors with memory loss. He's conducted a study um, in two special care units for seniors with memory loss in an assisted living residence as part of his um doctoral dissertation, and he's going to talk about that today, and it's really quite fascinating. I think you're going to find um, what he has found out over his 10-month direct observation study focused on care staff, on non-pharmaceutical strategies um, for prevention of responsive behaviors, which so many of us call those um, reactions or behaviors, negative behaviors, Um, and he's going to teach us how to really promote positive emotions among residents and family members. Um, Elon has taught an undergraduate course called The Psychology of Older Adults uh, with Memory Loss, and he's frequently asked to give talks and training programs for family caregivers and support groups for persons with memory loss and long-term, and also at long-term care residents. Through his 18 years in the field of aging, Elon has strongly committed himself to research and, and being able to twist things um, so that we understand it to be practical and useful today. He understands the nitty-gritty and he has a nice way of uh, explaining that to us uh, so it doesn't scare us because sometimes the information can get just a little bit overwhelming when we're reading it. So, Alan, uh, welcome to the show today. I'm just thrilled to have you. How are you doing today? Um, oh, let's see. I want to thank you, Lori, for uh, creating this um, 
really rare platform, and uh, especially for leading the way in dissemination of uh, useful knowledge and research into practice. Uh, the reality is that most of the insights from research and practice uh, do not reach those who need it um, the most, which is uh, the seniors, their family care partners, practitioners, and policymakers. Um, your ingenuity, passion, and ongoing commitment really helps bring us closer to bridging this gap. So um, you're doing a fabulous job, and I'm, I'm really excited to have this uh, opportunity uh, to uh, share some of the findings of my study with the listeners. Well, thank you. I uh I appreciate that comment. I know I found, um, as a care partner myself, I just didn't have time to read all these studies. I mean, they're very long and very intense, and I just needed i needed someone to be able to summarize them for me, speak my common language, um, and really give me hope that I could apply what it was they were telling me. And, um, and that's really what Alzheimer's Speaks is, is all about, is trying to bring it down to a level um, that is easily digested and highly practical. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have you here today. We've had several conversations that have been so interesting. And so let's go ahead and get started. Can you give um, our listeners just kind of an overall of your dissertation study? So what was your intent, and um, and why did you decide to, to do your dissertation on the topic that you did? So uh, let me first uh, also thank uh, the residents, uh, the family members, the staff, and the managers of the assisted living where I conducted the study. I also want to thank uh, my committee members uh, of the dissertation study uh, at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, um, the doctoral program in gerontology, uh, Professors Frank Carroll, Donna Haig Friedman, Ann Harley, and Jeff Burr. Um, I also want to thank um, Steve Orfield from um, Orfield Laboratories here in Minneapolis uh, for generously offering uh, me to use uh, this space for the talk um, and uh, as fascinating laboratories without regard and worth, uh, worth uh, visiting um, the things they're developing and researching here. Um, I also want to mention that um, if I would be using any names during the talk, uh, all the names were de-identified, and they were uh, actually. I'm going to use pseudonyms, uh, so I just wanted to say that um, uh, in advance. Um, now, in terms of, uh, uh, I want to kind of to let uh, to set the stage and um, give an overview about the study. Um, so, the setting in which I conducted the the study was an assisted living residence. Now, uh, a little bit of background. Assisted living residences are the fastest growing residential care option for seniors in the United States. In the state of Massachusetts, where the study was conducted, the number of certified assisted livings increased almost fivefold between the year 1995 and 2011. Uh, substantial growth also took place in the portion of residences that offered specialized dementia programs. And as the residents of this care setting age, more and more experience cognitive impairment. In fact, uh, studies show that um, between 42% and 50% of assisted living residents, residents have some form of dementia. Now, 
people who deal with uh, responsive behaviors um, on a daily basis, the care partners, um, they know that uh, m these behaviors are often um, more distressing for the person and for themselves uh, more than the cognitive and the functional uh, impairments. Um, now, looking at the statistics of uh, behaviors in this, uh, in this setting of assisted living, one-third to one-half to one of these residents are estimated to experience one or more responsive behavior at least once a week. Um, so in terms of the research site, um, I conducted the qualitative study in two special care units, two secured units of um, assisted living that is solely designed and dedicated for persons with dementia. Um, there were two units um, in which I collected the data. One was for people in the earlier and, and uh, middle stages of dementia, which I will call higher cognitive functioning unit. And the second unit was for people in the middle uh, stages and later stages of dementia, uh, which I will call lower cognitive functioning unit. Now, about 30 to 32 residents lived on each unit, and the vast majority uh, paid out of pocket to live there. Um, most of the residents were from high socioeconomic background. Uh, a handful of residents were, uh, had low income and were admitted under uh, PACE program. Now, the assisted living was um, chosen uh, uh, specifically because experts uh, evaluated it as, a, as providing a very high quality of dementia care. Um, just to give you a couple of examples, um, the assisted living had the capacity and commitment to provide extensive and diverse activity programming. Organized group activities usually started around 9.45 or 10 in the morning and ended not earlier than 8 in the evening. Um, the assisted living had a staff resident ratio of four CNAs and a team leader uh, per 30-plus residents. It had very low staff turnover. For example, the average care staff worker worked there uh, for seven years. Um, and it provided extensive Alzheimer's-specific staff training program. Um, now, the units were uh, locked, um, as I mentioned, and they were designed to create a home-like feeling. Um, and this was reflected in the furniture used, in the country kitchen, the living room with the hearth, and the fact that there were no nurse stations, among other uh, features. It was also designed to compensate for the residents' cognitive deficits, um, such as using um, visual cues and simple graphics, uh, such as a toilet on a bathroom door. They used differential color schemes, circular walking paths without dead ends, shadow boxes outside residents' apartments filled with personal pictures and objects to help residents reminded of their families and to help them navigate the unit. Each unit had three dining rooms and three activity rooms. Uh, one of the two units opened to a beautiful, large, and secured outdoor garden with a circular walking path and benches. Um, in terms of the, the goals of the study, um, the first, there were two research questions that were evolved over time, but they were the guiding research questions. The first one was, 
in what ways care staff strategies prevent and diffuse negative emotions and responsive behaviors among the residents? And the second question was, in what ways care staff strategies bring about and maintain positive emotions? Um, a little bit back on about the sample uh, of residents. Um, Twelve residents with dementia were selected for an in-depth study. These residents were carefully selected <coughs> excuse me, over a period of two months um, as experiencing the highest level of negative emotional states and responsive behaviors at the assisted living on a continuous, continual basis. Seven of these residents lived on the higher functioning unit and five on the low functioning unit. Two of these 12 residents were in the early stage dementia, seven were in the middle stage, and three were in late stage. The average age was 81 years old, all but one were w women, all were white, and most had college education. Um, and uh, in terms of the data collection strategies, I used participant observation as the primary data collection strategy. This was complemented by many, many informal conversations, with mainly, mainly with staff and managers, uh, but also with residents. I reviewed the daily staff communication log and conducted semi-structured interviews uh, with the staff uh, and managers. Um, now, I should emphasize that all the data collection was conducted only in the public spaces of the unit, uh, and that is... Uh, mostly the dining rooms, the activity rooms, and the hallways. I did not conduct observations inside apartments and in the personal bathing shower rooms. Uh, overall, I spent 10 months at the assisted living, a total of 206 days, about 10 hours each day, five days a week, which sums up to more than 2,000 hours uh, at the residence. Overall, I arrived at the assisted living at 7.45 in the morning, and I left around 6 in the evening. I rotated between the units in such a way that each day I collected data only in one unit and the following day in the other. Now, in terms of data analysis strategies, I'll be happy to share more about the data analysis strategies, but perhaps it is better to use our time to focus on the findings of the study and its practical implications. Interested listeners can email me after the talk for more details. I'll just say that it was an ethnographic study and I used qualitative and grounded theory methods. I hope that this gives the listeners a reasonably good overview of the study. Okay, that's that's great. You've, I think you've set the stage um, really well. Lots of hours and time and um, and deliverance. One thing, though, that I, I do want to ask, Elan, uh, is what you know what prompted your interest in this area before we kind of get into your findings? I'm always curious about that myself. Into the aging field to begin with. Yeah, and and into uh -huh. memory loss and dementia specifically. Yeah. Sure, sure. So, um, after the um, after I was discharged from the army service in Israel, I. Uh, looked for a job, and um, my grandfather um, lived in a nursing home, uh, and uh, we used to visit him there, and he passed away there. And uh, when I was at the uh, place where I was looking for the, a job, one of the places uh, was this nursing home. 
and I said, you know what, maybe I should go work there. And so I did, and I, I worked there uh, as a nurse aide. Um, and this is how I became uh, aware of the aging field and uh, how fascinating it is and how, how much need there is there. Um, so I really uh, I was really happy that I had the opportunity to cross the lines and uh, learn about this um, uh, um, world of later life. And this led me to um, to study social work, aging concentration, and from there the master's in gerontology and then uh, the Ph.D. Um, here uh, in, in the U.S. So um, that that's how I got into the field. I always find it interesting because usually there is, and not all the time, but usually there is some type of personal connection um, no matter how small it is, that just kind of perks that interest and and leads us down a different path. So I, I appreciate you sharing that that personal side with us. Um, can you tell us, you know, some of your your five, well, maybe maybe let me ask you this first. What were you expecting to find, and did you find that? Um, because I think even though we go into things thinking that you know we're open minded. Usually, in the back, we have some ideas of of what what we think might happen and did you did you have some ideas of of kind of what your expectations were going to be with this study or what you were going to find, or did you really just go into it very open minded and and um march forward well um I didn't really know what I'm getting into um and uh I, I was told that this particular care, care setting, uh, and I worked in similar settings in the past, uh, but I was told that this setting has um, one of the highest, uh, uh, providing one of the highest levels of quality of care. Uh, so that kind of set my expectation. Uh, but then gradually throughout the 10 months uh, of uh, my intense immersion in the field, in the, in the care setting, I learned that the reality is is more complex than that, and there's and even if you 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 provide excellent care, you still deal with a lot of challenges uh, on a daily basis um, that you need to figure out how to resolve. So that um, became clear pretty quickly after I um, I started the observations, and I mean in terms of um, behaviors and negative emotional states, and uh, you know being short staffed and uh, um, many other challenges that the setting experienced. So it was. Um, th- anyways, that that's that's the that's the gap that I, I experienced uh, pretty quickly after okay. I started studying. Okay. Well, let's get into some of your findings. Um, can you you know give us some examples of of what you experienced, what you what you saw the residents experience uh, during this period of time? Right, so uh, I followed those 12 residents um, on a daily basis, um, and um, one of the major, I mean, I found three major themes, and one of the major themes was that when residents were alone, uh, when those particular 12 residents were alone for a significant period of time, they developed a, a wide spectrum of negative emotional states, behavior problems, functional disabilities, functional uh, difficulties, uh, wayfinding difficulties, serious hygiene problems, and even safety risks. Um, And let me give you some uh, 
examples. So, um, and I, I should mention that uh, because the, the 12 residents were selected because they had the highest levels of negative emotions and behaviors, um, the, f the findings cannot be generalized to the entire uh, population of persons with dementia in, in this care setting. That would be uh, inaccurate and misleading. So, but that being said, those residents, um, when they were alone, unsupervised, uh, many of them became worried and anxious and irritable. Um, when they did not know what to do, uh, they became anxious when they didn't know where they were. Some of them um, cried, um, um, looking for their family members. Um, some of them became agitated when they were watching violent content on the TV, uh, such as fires, accidents, airplane crashes, and wars. Um, so the TV, while it is a source of pleasure for some residents, it's also a source of anxiety and agitation for others. I've seen a lot of aggressive behaviors between residents uh, during times when they were not supervised. Uh, residents entering other residents' apartments and uh, doing certain things there, uh, such as un undressing in front of the resident who, uh, who lives in that unit. Um, residents demanding anxiously, angrily, or even aggressively to leave the unit and go home or to back to their work. Um, taking a shower with, with all one's uh, clothes on, um, seen falls, um, residents um, had food and utensils misidentification. For example, a resident who who is trying to use a fork in an attempt to eat an unpeeled banana uh, or a dinner roll or to pour a ketchup into uh, a glass of water or to eat um, um, a, a sauce as if it was a, a food. Um, there were incidents of uh, hypoglycemia where a resident was uh, sitting in the um, main activity room and the staff were busy giving personal care in the apartment and she became pale and sweaty and nonverbal um, due to this episode. Um, a resident putting his hearing aid in the, in the toilet bowl. Um, there were a lot of what is called wayfinding difficulties. Uh, certain residents had what is called spatial disorientation. So they had a lot of difficulty reaching from one point in the unit to another point in the unit. For instance, some of them couldn't find their apartment. They couldn't find their dining room. They couldn't find. They were in their dining room and they couldn't find their designated table. They couldn't find their chair uh, at the dining room. Um, and some residents couldn't find the bathroom. So I'm walking up to a resident who, for minutes, looking for a bathroom and can't find it. And some residents couldn't find the activity room. Now, in terms of hygiene problems, um, a few residents were mishandling or misidentifying uh, feces. Um, one resident had, had balls of feces in her pocketbook. Um, I'll give more examples um, shortly. Um, and there were also repeated attempts by some residents to leave the unit um, unaccompanied. Um, and uh, another resident repeatedly tried to take electric devices apart and was at risk of electrocution. So these are some examples on the uh, higher functioning unit. And um, 
just uh, maybe a few more examples on the low-functioning unit. Um, a, a repeated attempt, a resident was repeatedly trying to take food from other residents' plates, and that created a lot of uh, um, many reactions, uh, some of them aggressive towards this resident. One resident uh, flooded a, ba a public bathroom, um, and um, one resident was observed to put a teaspoon inside her shoe during mealtime. Um, and um, residents not knowing where they are, um, repeatedly, you know, um, in terms of um, uh, hygiene problems, uh, there was one resident who repeatedly mishandled, misidentified, and smeared feces on herself, on her ba in her bathroom, public bathroom, um, carrying toilet paper with feces on it in the dining room, picking up trash from the garbage cans. And there are also risky behaviors, uh, as I mentioned, uh, attempts some successful to leave the unit unattended, um, eating a paper napkin during lunch, um, taking a knife and a fork from a drawer in the main kitchen of the unit and physically threatening to stab residents and staff. So I think this gives uh, a good sense of the spectrum of the behaviors and uh, emotions that uh, the sample residents experienced when they were uh, on their own. Well, and I think that so many of the examples that you gave are things that that people struggle with both in the community setting and at home, and not knowing what is causing you know these behaviors or how do they bring a calm and an understanding and a contentment to them. So, can you explain to us some of the things that you you saw um, in terms of being able to? you know, change behavior or, or or what you saw that kind of ignited behavior. Uh, right. So um, uh, Dr. Paul Rea from the Alzheimer's Association in Massachusetts said uh, something that um, was confirmed in this study. He said that um, engagement in meaningful activities is the main weapon against um, behavior problems and violent um Behaviors in dementia, and this is something. This is a, a finding that cuts across the different themes that were found in the study. So, analyzing the dozens of episodes of uh, situations where residents developed negative emotions and behaviors when they were alone, uh, revealed that the vast majority were took place when residents were not involved in activities. And, and when they did in, uh, engage in activities, you saw a dramatic reduction of those behaviors and elevation of positive emotional states. Um, uh, now, this is not to say that there were no negative emotions and behaviors during groups' uh, activities. There were, but, but even in those cases, you could identify a, an, an, a trigger, an, a situational trigger uh, that caused this uh, behavior. Um, so, um, and I can, you know, I can give uh, examples of that. So, certainly, um, activities uh, being engaged in something meaningful uh, is crucial. And um, unfortunately, uh, many, many uh, nursing home residents and uh, other care settings, uh, residents uh, suffer from boredom. And boredom is the, I would say, the disease of Alzheimer's disease. 
Um, because when residents were bored and lost and didn't know where to go or what to do, they developed those um, behaviors. Now, when I'm talking about activities, um, the standard today is that um, every interaction with a person with Alzheimer's should be considered as activity. And let me give you an, an example. It's not only organized activity. It's also um, uh, mealtime should be considered an activity. It uh, should be considered an activity. Even when a, a nurse aide walks in the hallway by a resident, uh, and whether she or he says hello and, and tells something positive to the person about the way they look uh, or just greeting them, that should be considered an activity. So, um, so it's not only those scheduled activities. Um, so, I'm glad you clarified that. And I think the that. key is um, uh, another big piece is documentation. Um, uh, if if many places, um, you know, the the extent to which they document the behaviors is is limited. And when you read the documentation, many times uh, the quality of the documentation is low. And specifically, there's not a lot of detail about the sequence of events, the circumstances, and the sequence of events that lead to the, to the behavior. Um, this is the true window of opportunity for prevention. Uh, so if we use a structured behavioral log on, a, on an ongoing basis, we can identify those patterns and those triggers and then we can plan interventions based on those trigger, uh, patterns to eliminate uh, those triggers. Um, so, um, so, so yeah, I think that's, these are a couple of things that uh, that are very, very important. I think it's I think it's great. You know, some of the um, examples that you gave, you know, was the the TV, you know and having an effect on people. And I know with my mom, I mean, when we had gone to war and the bombing was just all over the TV, I mean, she thought, you know, we were in the crux of it here in the U.S. And she was just so frightened and so scared. And I, I think the volume and, you know, all of those things are really important to um, to keep in mind. And I, I love that you talked about, you know, viewing this as an opportunity to look for the triggers because they're there. You know, we just have to take the time, maybe not the 2,000 hours or so that you put in, um, but we really do need to slow down and, um, you know, see what happened before, um, what's going on, who's around, you know, what's from volume to sound to light to um, all different types of things, and then also understanding that an activity doesn't have to be, you know, bingo. I think a lot of people think, you know, if it's an activity, it's structured and it's a, it's a big whoop-de-doo. But an activity is really an engagement that can happen on a one-on-one um, or in a group setting. And um, and so I'm interested in hearing more about what you saw um, in terms of. Um, the reactions of people when they were alone versus when they were engaged. So can you give us some examples of, of how you saw things change for people? Uh-huh. So um, we talked a little bit about what happens to residents when they were alone. Um, 
I I'd like if it's okay with you to to talk about the uh, second major theme, which is the um, resident-to-resident aggressive behaviors. And sure. as you mentioned, uh, many of them took place uh, when residents were uh, unsupervised. Um, and um, this is a very concerning phenomenon. Most research focused on uh, aggressive behaviors that take place between residents and staff, during, usually during personal care. But there's... Um, only a few studies that actually looked at resident-to-resident aggression, and I, I'm talking about verbal and physical um, uh, aggression. And um, so I identified 85 episodes of uh, such a resident-to-resident aggression on both units, and the underlying um, finding was that in the majority of them, when you look closely at those um, circumstances, you will see, uh, at least I saw, um, an observable uh, early warning sign prior to the manifestation of the aggressive act. More than that, in the majority of those episodes, it was possible to identify a trigger. Um, so when I'm, when I'm saying early warning sign, I mostly talk about you would see something on the facial expression of, of one of the residents involved, or the, you, you will see a certain uh, gesture that they make of frustration or anger, or they may say something. And it, most of the times, uh, it, it builds gradually. So this is the window, again, the window of opportunity for prevention. Um, so, um, and, and then, the, again, tying it back to the documentation, uh, there's a, unfortunately, most behaviors are not documented in nursing homes. And the same was in this study. Only 20% of those episodes were, were reported. And most of the times, the reports in the staff communication log uh, were uh, devoid. There, there was no um, enough detail about the sequence of events that led to the behaviors. Um, and again, it's so important because if we uh, use documentation of episodes on a regular basis in a systematic way, most of the time you will start to see patterns um, of behaviors. And again, that's the basis for um, intervention. Um, so. Uh, another interesting uh, finding, which is similar to the to the first major theme um, that I talked about earlier, is that the majority of the incidents took place, the incidents of resident-to-resident aggression, took place during times when residents were not engaged in meaningful activities. So, they were uh, many of them took place during uh, mealtime. So, mealtime was a vulnerability time period. Uh, for those residents on both units. An interesting finding is that on both units, close to 40% of the, of the incidents were endangering the physical safety of one or more residents involved in, in, the, in the episode. And another finding was that in the majority of the incidents, between three-quarters to 80% of the episodes, staff was present in the area where the incident took place. Now, they may have been, you know, in the dining room, for instance, they may be 
serving another resident um, a meal, and the episode happened behind them, and they couldn't couldn't see it, or they were busy. Uh, but uh, in the majority of the episodes, a staff member was in the area where the incident uh, took place. So these are some of the findings. Now you asked about um, you asked about um, uh, strategies. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the uh, some of the strategies that were identified um, included simply being alert. Um, and um, being proactive was very, very important as opposed to being reactive. You know, it's one thing to stand uh, at the country kitchen counter and overseeing the residents during mealtime. It's another to uh, try to engage them in a conversation and um, uh, nurture the sense of companionship. Uh, food can bring a lot of, you know, memories uh uh, fond memories for people from their past. Um, so how you can make uh, this experience uh, more pleasurable for residents as opposed to reacting when a problem happens. Uh, it's much much easier to prevent something than to try to um, um, de-escalate it. Um, another strategy was simply being informed about previous incidents that took place um, or a history of confrontations between two residents. And this, again, goes back to the importance of documentation um, on a daily basis. Another strategy was redirecting a resident from an area where the aggressive behavior takes place. Offering a resident to take a walk. Um, Obviously, separating um, residents physically. uh, Positioning, repositioning, or changing seating arrangement. Refocusing or switching the topic or subject. Uh, distracting to, uh, the person to a more pleasurable activity, uh, diverting to a different activity or changing activity. Another strategy is, is simply being very important to stay calm because we know that people with um, dementia, with Alzheimer's disease, are experts in sensing our, our core emotions. Um, as Judy Berry mentioned um, in the last show, they will pick up on our emotions. So this part of the brain that is regulating the emotions in a significant portion of people with Alzheimer's um, are able, uh, this, this part of the brain remains intact into later stages relatively, and they're able to experience a range of emotions and identify emotions in others. So if we approach them frustrated uh, and anxious and angry, they will sense it and they will mirror it. They will respond accordingly. So that 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 was mentioned and um, by staff, and obviously never arguing with the resident um, involved in aggressive behavior. Well, you never argue with a person with Alzheimer's because you can never win this argument. Or if you do win, the the price will be very um, um, it would be very costly. Um, and seeking help from other res- other staff members. Um, another important strategy was. Um, experiential learning, um, the importance that uh, managers uh, will be on the floor as much as possible, especially during the evening hours um, when uh, there were quite a lot of uh, behaviors. And the staff really needs the guidance, the support, uh, the mentoring, the role modeling, or simply to to share their emotions and their frustrations uh, to deal better with those behaviors. 
um, the importance of effective communication between uh, between staff, um, between shifts, between days, between days and weekends. How can we make sure that the information uh, of, of incidents uh, is uh, transmitted efficiently between care staff so they're informed and they're they're using what is called anticipatory care to prevent recurrent behaviors. Um, of course, communication techniques with residents that are well uh, established in the literature. Um, another big piece is knowing the life history of residents with dementia. And I wrote a short piece about uh, 20 reasons why we uh, need to know the life history of people with dementia. People can find it on uh, uh, my website. Um, and um, let me give you an example. Two residents uh, had an altercation in a, during an activity when one resident uh, spoke um, continuously and disrupted the group activity. The resident who sat next to her put her hand on her, on her mouth, and, um, and in response she uh, pushed her and um, um, attacked her physically. And um, it was very hard to redirect the resident who responded with the aggressive behavior. And then an insightful private aide uh, walked in and started to talk with the resident about meals. And I followed up with him. Uh, he, he was able to redirect her pretty easily out of the room. Um, and he said that he knew the history of this resident, that she owned and, and was um, a manager of, of restaurants for many, many years. And he said that calmed her down. So this is how he was able to diffuse the situation. Um, another strategy is consistency of uh, seating arrangement. Um, this is also very important uh, for residents with dementia. Another strategy is to avoid crowding. You know, when, when there's aggressive behavior between residents and the staff run to diffuse it, uh, think about how it may be experienced by the resident. He may feel that he is cornered and will strike back in response. So we always want to be mindful of that. And again, the engagement in meaningful activities, um, which really dramatically reduce those behaviors. Um, and avoiding labeling language such as, you know, abusive and violent and out of control. Instead, what we want to do is to invest our efforts in understanding the underlying need behind the behavior. And what, what, what uh, Professor Cohen Mansfield uh, teaches us, the meaning of the sequence of events that lead to those behaviors. And, and there are many other strategies, but maybe the last one uh, for today is reassuring residents during and after incidents. And that includes pe uh, residents who were witnesses of the behaviors. Um, they are also being impacted, and many of them develop fear and anxiety for, for long periods of time after the aggressive behaviors. Um, so I hope this gives um, some sense to the um, listeners about some of the strategies that are important to, to use. And um, I'm developing a training program specifically on resident-to-resident -resident aggressive behaviors, and, there, and I can share it with the interested listeners. Um, I also have a, a blog uh, which is called Aggression Between Residents uh, with Dementia, and um, where um, 
I and um, um, visitors post uh, resources to help us all understand this concerning phenomena and being able to prevent and de-escalate it um, uh, more effectively. Well, that's wonderful. I think, um, you know, one of the points that you just bring home again is that we really, there's so many of these non-verbals that we really have to, you know, um, learn to communicate better and intake that. We don't have to just listen for someone to tell us something in a full sentence of what their needs are, but that we really have to be much more in tune to people's needs and seeing when they're body language is is out of sync um with what's going on and try Certainly. to try to try to dig a little a little deeper in doing that um i think that the staff training is going to be absolutely phenomenal and and very much needed and so you'll have to keep me posted on that um, cuz i'd love to help you push that out because you know there's not enough of us out there doing training um and and it really does take a toolbox um, when you're dealing with this disease. There is no one special answer or, anyways, my feeling is, or one special method. It's it's constantly pounding at home in terms of what's going on and things to look for. And we all take in different things at different times in different ways. And and so I, I think that that's a, a great, great need there. Um, when you were doing this, can you give? I, I know when we had talked on the, um, when we had met for coffee one day, you had given me just even a couple of examples of what you saw when somebody was alone, and you could kind of see it bubbling, and then how different they were once they were in an activity. Can you give us a couple of examples of those? Because I think that was just so profound when you were telling me. I mean, it really draws the picture. Um, of the difference that it makes. Sure. So um, uh, one morning I observed uh, Miss Jones uh, for a full hour, from 9 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock. She already finished her breakfast, and the first group activity of the day was planned to start only at 10. And during this hour, I did a minute-by-minute observation and the residents seemed completely lost, disoriented, bored, upset, and sad. Um, and at one point she said, when she was asked how she's doing, she said, I don't know, everything is mixed up. At another point she said, I don't know what to do. And then she added, I don't know where I am. And then after one hour, um, she was invited to a music therapy activity. And the moment she sat in the music group activity, and throughout 53 minutes of the activity, she seemed calm, smiling, playing her drum, and singing. No negative facial expressions were observed throughout the activity. Now, this is important because the time period before the first activity of the day, at least in this care setting, uh, represented a vulnerability time period. Analysis showed that about 30% of incidents of resident-to-resident aggression took place during this time period. And um, so this is um, this is just uh, one example. Um, but one of the 
uh, really strength um, um, points of you know uh, capabilities of these uh, assisted living residents is that they had the capacity to provide extensive and diverse failure-free activity programming throughout the day and the evening. Um, they had uh, about 54 types of activities, and um, on a random day, they could provide 14 to, uh, to 17 activities, different activities um, on each unit, and sometimes even offer um, activities simultaneously and to provide choice for residents. Um, and while there were many other many activities that were effective, some activities stood out in their effectiveness. And, and um, if I would, I would like to share which which they were. Sure, that would be great. Uh, uh, so the music-based activities and music therapy were extremely effective um, as a core modality, but also music was used in other types of activities. Um, to complement it. It was very soothing um, when it was used. Um, and uh, another activity was current events, and it was especially effective when the visuals were projected on the big screen, um, which helps the residents um, process the information better. Um, one of the most successful activities was, uh, was uh, when the toddlers, a group of toddlers, were visiting the unit. Now, this is something uh, to see. When a group of eight toddlers walk into a special care unit, the whole atmosphere changes immediately. The residents' eyes are glued to them. You see frequent smiles and laughs and hugs and simple joy when the residents interact spontaneously with the toddlers who are simply playing with toys in the middle of the room while music is playing in the background. Um, another type of activity is the exercise-based activities and sport-related activities, um, including outdoor activities such as uh, bachi in the garden. Uh, massage therapy was, was very effective and uh, generated very positive reactions. Another uh, therapy is art therapy, especially in small groups, uh, especially for residents who have difficulty, who get overwhelmed in big groups of, of 15 or 20 residents. Um, Another activity was creative movement and dancing as well. Many residents not able to speak, uh, but they still um, preserve their procedural memory and they're able to dance, and it brings so much pleasure to them. And, of course, the outings to the community um, and the connection to the community is so important in those uh, care settings. So these are some of the, uh, some of the general uh, activities and um, you could see residents um, with severe cognitive impairment who play the piano for 21 minutes. Of course, with, with, with guidance and with cueing, and, and many residents have difficulty to initiate an activity, but once you set them up, some of them are able to uh, engage in the activity successfully. And this brought a lot of pleasure to the resident and to the uh, 20 or so residents that were uh, sitting in the room and enjoying her playing. And the key here, it goes back again to knowing the life history and especially the early life history of the residents. The staff knew that this resident, Miss Lewis, was a church uh, organist and sang on a, in a church choir for 50 years. Her procedural memory was relatively intact. 
hardwired in her brain. So she was able to continue and engage and enjoy in this uh, type of activity. And I have many other uh, mother, many other uh, examples, but uh, uh, listeners can you know read. Um, there's a section in the doctoral dissertation that uh, describes um, other um, activities minute by minute and the effects on the on the residents. Well, that is wonderful. Um, you've given us a lot to think about, and um, and like I said, it was a nice tie-in with. Uh, with Judy and Al and the, the whole the whole process there, definitely in terms of of interacting and connecting and um, and keeping you know keeping things calm and just you know utilizing that insight and um, and slowing down just to just to pay attention. Uh, I appreciate all of the time and hours that you put in in your dissertation and. And this study, um, because again, it just brings things home in terms of what we need to do, and um, and I think it really gives people hope to know that there is a reason for their reactions, um, you know, just like there is for the rest of us. And so we just have to we have to learn to communicate on a different level in a different way, um, because they can't always tell us. Exactly what's going on with that? Right. Um, we've got about um, you know five minutes left. Is there any any last tips that you would like to uh, give our audience um, in terms sure. of interactions? Okay. Sure. So the the main goal of caring for people with dementia, as uh, the late Tom Kitwood from the UK taught us, is to preserve their personhood. And um, Zgola uh, from Canada teaches us that the single most important asset we have with care and caring for people with dementia is trust. Now, in order to build trust and maintain trust, the key there is, again, knowing and learning thoroughly the early life experiences of those individuals. Only when we learn their life history, we can provide um, person-directed care and effective care. This is a key for simple conversation, for planning activities, um, for planning the environment in which the person lives, uh, the food, the music, and so on, and to diffuse behaviors as well. And... Um, so behavior is always, I mean, most of the times there's an underlying need behind the behavior, and um, we need to focus on the meaning of the sequence of events that lead to the behaviors. Behaviors most of the time are not random acts, and they're reactive. They are reacting to some frustration or anger um, or something of, or misunderstanding. The, the world is becoming more and more unfamiliar to them. And if I may end with a quote um, of a granddaughter of a woman with Alzheimer's, would that be okay? Oh, that would be wonderful. So um, a granddaughter of one of the residents who participated in the study, uh, when she was in high school and her grandmother was in another assisted living dementia unit uh, in the mid-stage of Alzheimer's, she wrote the following. What I found most helpful when taking care of Nanny was remembering that while she would yell at us, or be hurt that we could not stay with her forever. 
it wasn't her real self reacting. We try to remember that Alzheimer's disease takes people's lives away, and the unfamiliar person we see is just as unfamiliar to them. Until we find the cure, our family will fight for Nanny because underneath the shell of memory loss, the confusion, and the sadness, there is a person with a heart that will always remember. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing all that you have with us today and, and wrapping up your segment so nicely um, with that prose. Now, Ellen, how um, how can people get a hold of you? What's the best way for them to contact you? Is it through your website or? Yeah, so I have uh, uh, a website, and it's um, uh, my name in one string, Caspi dot com. Um, and, okay, let's uh, spell that for them. So that's. E as in Edward, I as in Ice, L as in Like, O as in Oscar, N as in Nancy, Nancy. C C. as in Cat, A as in Aspirin, (laughs) Um, (laughs) P as in Paul, I as in Ice. So C-A-S-P-I. Okay. And they, they should see the name on the show, I believe, and mm-hmm. just add .com, and maybe that will help. I also have an email, uh, which is elonkaspi at yahoo.com. Um, and um, I also have a blog, on which is called Aggression Between Residents with Dementia, and it can be found, um, simple Google search, but also on my website. Um, you can find it under... Um, what I, I believe knowledge exchange, yes. If you go to knowledge exchange, you will see a link to this uh, post where you can ask questions about this phenomena or post res- resources uh, there to help us all understand this, this uh, phenomena and um, um, treat it better and address it better. Um, so, yeah, so this is, this is the way that people can uh, contact me. Okay. Can you say the name of your blog again, Aggression Between Residents? It's called Aggression Between Residents with Dementia. With Dementia. Yeah, and if you go to my website, it's under uh, Knowledge Exchange. Um, There's a tab, Knowledge Exchange, and you can see there there's a link to um, to the blog. Okay. Well, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you for all your time today, and this was a great information that you gave us, and I'm sure there'll be some of our audience will be in touch. Um, you've got great articles and um, wonderful, wonderful concepts. And again, you'll have to let us know when your training um, program is all up and running, and and um, maybe we'll have you back on again. Okay. I'd love to. Thank you for your uh, for giving me this opportunity and uh, for your fabulous, fabulous job in uh, committing your commitment to dissemination of useful knowledge into practice. Thank oh, you, Lori. And thank you, the have listeners. A wow. Have a wonderful holiday season, Alan. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. You take care. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our second guest, which is um, Dr. Ronald um, DeVer, and he is a board-certified neurologist and the director of the Alzheimer's Disease and Memory Disorders Center in Austin, Texas. He's a fellow of the American Academy of Neurology, 
and a member of the Texas Council of Alzheimer's Disease, which is actually a governor-appointed seat. He is a past board member of the Austin and Southeast uh, Texas chapter of of the Alzheimer's Association. Dr. DeVere is also the author of Memory Loss, Everything You Want to Know But Forgot to Ask. So I'm thrilled to have you with us today, Dr. DeVere. How are you doing? I'm fine, Lori. I appreciate being on your, your show, and I was just listening to the other guests, and that's some great information. Well, great. Well, I first I want to start out and ask, why did you feel a need to write your book? What uh, what prompted you to uh, to write Memory Loss, Everything You Want to Know But Forgot to Ask? <clears throat> well, it was fairly simple. Um, the fear of Alzheimer's disease uh, is an epidemic proportions, and um, unfortunately not all the information about this uh, disease and memory loss is well understood uh, by the public, caregivers, even uh, for health care providers. And uh, I don't need to tell people about Alzheimer's, uh, people who are exposed to it or have family members. We know it's not a very good disease to have. But there's so much fear of caregivers and also children of uh, people with the disease um, that everything that you hear is uh, very, very negative. And um, my uh, comments were, and I see this every day in my practice, is that there's so many myths uh, that are propagated about memory loss that if you have memory loss, you have a high risk of getting dementia and Alzheimer's and uh, there's no treatment for the disease and you continue to decline and then you die of it. Um, Yes, in a way, some of that is true, but not quite in that setting. So I believe the glass is half full um, in regard to disorders of memory and even in other areas of cognitive disturbance, Uh, not empty. Uh, The glass is totally empty, and that's the way I see it from what's talked about uh, through uh, media, uh, even the national organization. Uh, I uh, I think there's lots of good people doing a great job, But I think it's important that the general public and caregivers need to understand that not all memory changes is Alzheimer's disease. And there's other diseases that can do it. There's other treatments. And as I said, the glass is half full. And I wasn't seeing that in any of the literature uh, that was uh, being written about it. Well, I'm glad you wrote your book because I... You know, I'm a big one that wants to squash out this whole fear factor because I think it's just so devastating on multiple levels. And we really need to have honest conversations about memory loss and dementia and Alzheimer's and and make this fit into our lives just like we have done with diabetes and cancer and heart disease. Um, it's something that probably isn't going to go away in our society for a long, long time. And so we have to learn to live with it as not only as individuals, but as a community, as families, as professionals, and really work together um, to make people feel comfortable um, with this disease. So let's start out with when should someone, you know, seek medical attention? And, you know, how do you, how do you know when it's time well, the- to go to the doctor? Well, as you know, I think, Lori, that the most common symptom that has concerned our society is changes in memory because uh, we all recognize that very easy as just public, 
when somebody starts having memory problems, uh, it's not that hard to recognize. Of course, disorders of speech are also easy, but other areas of the brain are not. So everybody, uh, lots of people have memory loss. And what I recommend is that if you're worried about your memory and it's not doing its job, um, that's the time to get it checked. That doesn't mean it's Alzheimer's disease. If you have chronic headaches, you've got belly pain, you go to the doctor. Um, you can talk yourself out of, well, this is just nothing, I'm stressed. But if it continues to bother you, you definitely should seek help. Now, of course, the other uh, switch is that if other people recognize that somebody's having memory loss, like mom or dad or uh, friends or family, then uh, they should be aware that anytime other people start recognizing that memory is not normal, that's not necessarily part of aging. We don't believe in major memory loss anymore uh, with the term senility. That term should be gone by the wayside. We, we used it back in the 70s and 60s because we didn't know much about the brain uh, as we do now. We still, still a lot we don't know. So my rule is if you have a memory disorder and you're concerned about it, have it checked. But if other people start noticing it, then try to get that person to get evaluated. Uh, and that sometimes can be difficult. Uh, I have a chapter in my book on how to get mom to see a doctor or some family member who says there's nothing, I don't see anything, but the family and, care and other people notice there's a problem. So I make it easy. My threshold for evaluation is very, very low. Okay. The, there's so um, many memory loss oh, that are so treatable. Oh, I say there's so many causes of memory loss that are so easy treatable. Uh, we wish a lot of them are more frequent, but if you don't get tested, you don't know and get evaluated. Can you give a couple of examples of those treatable um, situations for people? I think sometimes just knowing but that's a possibility, can can lighten the load in terms of going to the doctor, um, in terms of, you know, really approaching it and going, okay, there, you know, there's a wide variety here. So could you give a couple of examples? There there are lots of things. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just mentioning, since you brought up my book, I have a list of things. There's medical conditions and there's neurological conditions. Uh, certainly, uh, one of the more common causes of changes in memory are people who are anxious, who are depressed, who are agitated, who are nervous, who are worried for something that either, you know, something going on in the family, financial, job. That's going to impair your ability to focus and concentrate. Um, one of the common conditions we're seeing now is people with a sleep disorder. Uh, they may be more tired in the day. They don't get to sleep as much. They may snore at night. And a lot of people are aware of a condition called sleep apnea, which really is a disorder that your brain isn't going through the stages of sleep, your oxygen level drops, people with kicking movements at night. Their brain doesn't know that they're not really, the person doesn't know they're not sleeping. The brain does. And so the next day they can't focus and they can't concentrate and uh, their mind isn't working. It's like staying up for two nights in a row and studying for an exam, and then you you know you can't function. So that's that's very common. Uh, unless we ask for that symptom and go through that in the history, we're going to miss a lot of uh, conditions that are treatable. Of course, there are small strokes, thyroid deficiency, medicines. Medicines in my practice is one of the most common causes of changes in memory. 
um, medicines that sometimes control blood pressure, medicines that are for sedatives. Uh, some people take uh, sleeping pills on a regular basis, uh, various medicines to control uh, urgency of bladder function. Now, if you've been on them for 10 years, that's not likely going to cause it, but usually in the first three to four months, it has to be considered. So those are just a small number of, of things that are all, you know, treatable, including, say, vitamin B12 deficiency and folic acid, small head injuries that somebody doesn't recognize. Uh, grandfather hits his head against the door in the sink, he doesn't remember that. All he remembers in the family notices he wasn't unconscious, but his memory starts to go down. Nobody knew he even hit his head. So those are things that are, are very, very uh, common, many of them, and they're very treatable and certainly are not Alzheimer's disease. Okay. What kinds of evaluations can, can people expect when they go to a doctor? What, uh, what should they be um, expecting? Well, the biggest problem in our society in the medical business is time. And uh, our uh, very hardworking family care doctors and internists, um, they, because of, again, uh, we're not blaming anybody, but because of the reimbursement issue and trying to make a living, we just give less time to our practice. Uh, even neurologists, I'm a neurologist. Uh, a lot of neurologists have to see a lot of patients to make a go. So the thing is it takes at least 30, 30 to 40 minutes to properly evaluate somebody who comes in with a memory disorder. And a lot of people and doctors don't have the time. It, what it requires is, for example, a thorough history, which is what we all take and find out the story. Uh, we do a complete uh, physical exam. We usually have a memory test that we give in the office, and there are a number of different ones out there. The common one is a mini mental test, which is not very sensitive for memory loss, but it's a good start. And then the other thing that is missing in most practices is that we need to get the assistance of a caregiver, whether it's somebody that came with the patient or is at home, to get their information of what they've noticed. Now, you don't want to do that in the same room as the person with the memory disorder, because what happens is if you start telling the doctor you've noticed this and this about mom, that's going to create some negative feelings. So there is something called an activities of daily living assessment sheet, which is not original. They've been out for a long time. And the caregiver should go into the waiting room, fill out the sheet, make his comments about observation of what he thinks about, say, his mother or whoever's seeing the doctor, and then, with that information, along with the doctor's history and the, and the cognitive exam, we should be able to determine if this person is normal, is there a mild impairment, or is there much more severe impairment? Because it depends not only on a cognitive test, but uh, the term, as you know, we use activities of daily living. Because the, the definition of dementia is a cognitive disorder that impairs a number of areas, but it should have impaired activities of daily living. And most people that come in who have a memory disorder, they usually don't recognize some of those things, particularly early. And so we need a combination of things from the different people that come and, and, and talk to the doctor. 
So after uh, we decide that this person may just have a mild memory disorder, we want to go through the tests. And uh, in my opinion, and I think it's standard, we usually recommend a number of very basic tests. They include, of course, an imaging test, such as an MRI. If they can't have an MRI because of uh, atrial fibrillation or a metal in their body or a stimulator, then we get a CAT scan. Um, we want often, if it's very mild changes, we get the help of a neuropsychologist who's a PhD in psychology, and they do cognitive testing for people. And they know the standard for what should somebody be doing on that test based on their age, on their education, and their gender. So our simple office test is not that sensitive. It may tell us there's a problem, but we often need the neuropsychologist to help. And they're not a luxury referral. They're often very sensitive, very important, particularly in those people who have just mild uh, complaints. And then we run a battery of minimum tests, which include a thyroid, which most commonly the family doctor often will do. Uh, we get a B12, folic acid level. Uh, a big player nowadays that's become very important is a product blood test for homocysteine, which you may have discussed in the past, H-O-M-O-C-Y-S-T-E-I-N-A. And what that does is if it's elevated, it causes memory impairment. It also causes amyloid to be stored in the brain and increases the risk for Alzheimer's disease and stroke. So when we measure it and if it's elevated, we sometimes can help memory. More importantly, we get rid of the risk factor that can cause further cognitive decline. That's not being done very much in uh, family practice and other doctor's offices because it's an expensive test, and sometimes Medicare, for example, doesn't pay for it. But what we do is we uh, code it, which is true. If somebody's worrying about Alzheimer, you can code it as a possible Alzheimer diagnosis, and that's usually covered. But that's a very essential uh, part of the workup, in addition to the things that, of course, most family doctors will check, your blood count, your electrolytes, uh, liver tests, those are obvious. But the stuff that we see, uh, these other extra things are often not done. And then what we'll do is get all those tests together and have the person come back, and then we can tell them, based on all those tests, where their, uh, what their level of brain function is, and more importantly, what do we think the cause is? Okay. okay. Now, That's, one question. In my opinion, I, oh, go ahead. Uh, so in my opinion, that should be the standard of an evaluation for anybody who has a cognitive complaint as their main symptom. Um, okay. And can't come up. You can't spend... Ten minutes with a person and tell them, well, you've got a memory disorder. Here is some Aricept or something, and they go home and take it. That's not a diagnosis or workup, and that's very incomplete in 2012. Well, and it's it's very disruptive to one's life if that's all they're getting, you know. And you hear that so many times from people that, um, you know, a term is thrown out, and they're told to call the Alzheimer's Association, and you know, they'll be seen yeah. in, in, you know, nine months or so. 
and um, we just really need to be able to give people more more answers, better answers, and, and much more support. So I have a question for you, and I should have um, asked this actually earlier. If someone is planning on going to the doctor, who do you recommend go with the patient, or should they go alone? And what should they prepare um, to help you in terms of diagnosis? Well, as I said uh, initially, that you should usually bring somebody, uh, if they can come, uh, a spouse, uh, a child, uh, a very close friend. And those are the things that uh, come to my office. Uh, I've had everybody that you can think of. And they're very helpful because they usually know the information. And remember I said we would send them out in the waiting room to fill out an activities of daily living assessment sheet while mm-hmm. I'm examining the patient. That's one of the most important information that you're gonna we're gonna get. What is that person doing at home? And how are how are they cooking? Are they able to use the remote control T V? Uh do they write their checks, are they able to balance their checks? These are some of the things that other members know that the person who has the problem is often not even going to remember. And not only that, they're not going to admit to it. Their driving skills, you know, are they getting lost? Do they have trouble negotiating four lanes of traffic and stop signs? The people that have the problem often don't see the forest for the trees. They're not denying it. They, they, they're, sometimes their insights impaired. So that's mm-hmm. where it's what I do is if someone doesn't come with a caregiver, what we need to do at the end of the session is I send the person home and I'm going to say, can I call your husband or somebody, and they give me permission, and I get on the phone and I contact that person later the day or the evening, and I get that part, because that's going to make a decision on what tests I'm going to order and how how is there a problem with this person. Because okay. if you come in and tell me your memory's impaired and nobody else in the family knows it and no one at work has noticed it, the odds are you probably have some stress or overload as opposed to the other way around where if you often don't complain of too many things but other people want you to come, which is my experience the most common, 90% say, I'm here because my spouse told me to come. I don't really don't see anything. I don't think my memory is a problem. And most of those people turn out to have the problem. So mm-hmm. very crucial to have somebody with you or be sure you call them and fill out that activities of daily living or ask the questions. You never want to do it in front of a caregiver, in front of the patient. You could see why. That's going to create some negative feelings. And by the time they leave your office, they're going to be they're going to be yelling at each other because uh, I've lost some people occasionally in the past for that reason, so I stopped doing that. Yeah, that's, I know with, with my mother what we did was a lot of times we just communicated ahead of time. I would send an email or back in the day a fax um, to the doctor's nurse to review um, the issues that we had at hand, and so he would just um, make those points, and it wasn't coming from us. And it was accepted much better versus uh, your daughter's asking about this. <laughs> you know, that didn't go over well at all. And so that really helped us maintain our relationship once we left the doctor's office um, in terms of how things were handled. But we had a really nice um, way to communicate um, ahead of time. And, again, this was after our relationship was was developed that we just found it was much smoother 
to be able to kind of chart things, um, and we we were really encouraged to make notations in terms of when there was an issue, you know, what was the issue, what happened right before the issue, and um, to try to see, you know, if we could develop some type of patterns or things that we could change. And we were kind of shocked how often there were patterns and there were things that we could change um, to reduce those those negative reactions that we didn't want. And so that was kind of interesting in and of itself. Um, we have talked a little bit about, uh, you know, getting into the doctor's appointment and types of evaluations that one can expect. What, um, you know, once you get all this information um, pulled together, how do you, as a physician, you know, disseminate that information and what's the typical response that you get? Um, I, I'm just kind of curious in terms of, of how, you, how you tell families if there is a problem. Right. Well, that's everyday work in our business, and what I do is uh, I don't. Uh, I, I we call the patient back after all the tests are completed. The one that takes the most time is the neuropsychological assessment. Depending on how many people you have in the city, it may take two to three weeks, sometimes a month, to get all the scores and the cognitive testing results. So we tell people it's going to take anywhere from four to six weeks. So they're not, and, and I tell them, don't call me for every test because I'm going to go over with you. If I see your scan of the brain is not so good, I'll contact you ahead of time. And so we get people to come in, and what I do, it's usually a caregiver or family and the patient, and I start from the beginning. I say, let's review why we're here, and then we go through it. And <clears throat> we decided that your memory is not so good based on our previous test, now I'm going to go over the test results with you and tell you what we think is possibly the cause of your problem. So we go through the MRI scan and say your MRI either looks normal or very commonly your scan shows a number of small little strokes which are we call white matter lesions and you're say 65 years old uh, I think that may be a little more than I'd like to see at your age, but also I look at your history. What do I find? You have high blood pressure, you have high cholesterol, <clears throat> and uh, maybe you're a smoker, maybe not. Um, so I'm going to keep that in mind because I'm going to say, look, we know that small strokes can cause cognitive impairment. Uh, so I keep that there for a moment. And then I go through all the lab work and say everything's normal except maybe the homocysteine is elevated. Normal homocysteine should be 12 and under. This particular person, for example, has 17. So I'm going to say to them, well, look, high homocysteine is a risk for cognitive decline. We, I can't prove to you this is the cause, but it's definitely going to get into trouble here because we know it increases progression and increases stroke risk as well. And so I'm going to come back to you uh, in just a moment. Let me go through the rest of the tests. And then the neuropsychologist report says this person has a memory disorder, and the reason they have it is because you, they're, not, they're not storing information. They get it in the front door, but they're not storing it. The rest of the brain, not bad. What does that mean? Uh, their decision their ability to concentrate and focus, their simple reasoning is okay. 
So all that tells us that that person seems to have a memory disorder and right off the bat does not meet the criteria for dementia. And by dementia, what we said again was two or more areas of brain function and the other areas beside memory are speech, uh, big trouble getting words out, um, personality change, uh, visual perception, where the person's getting lost and can't find his way, and something that we call executive function, which refers to judgment, planning, reasoning, and insight. So we, we, when we combine the neuropsychological battery and the caregiver's response to what they've noticed, we would say this person has probably a condition that we call a memory disorder, which is not from age, but now we use that term again, which is new in the last five years, mild cognitive impairment, MCI. And what that means is you have an impairment in one area of brain function. It's not dementia, but it's not normal. It's not a normal thing. So what can we do for this person? Well, we're going to say, I think the small strokes in your brain are probably contributing to the cause. Not only that, your homocysteine is very high, so let's reduce our risk factors for stroke. How do we do that? Well, you're going to have to take your blood pressure, if it's elevated, on your own at home once a week. Don't wait till you go to the doctor twice a year, because what about the rest of the year? How do we know what your pressure is? And high blood pressure is one of the most strong risks for stroke. So we're going to get the family to get involved in helping blood pressure control, and they'll call the doctor if it's elevated. We'll give them the parameters. We're going to also recommend that you exercise 30 minutes three, four times a week, and the best exercise is pedaling an indoor bicycle because the data has shown now more than anything that not only is it good for your heart, but it helps keep brain cells working and synapses stronger. That's one of the hottest things now in cognitive function, not only in impaired people, but in the normal aging population. This, the data is very, very solid for that. Number three, we're going to get that homocysteine down. We're going to put you on a product called Serifolin. It's a uh, uh, prescription, uh, eventually, vitamin that's rapidly absorbed in the gut and helps to lower homocysteine. It's actually got a lot of B12 and folic acid in it and another product that's an antioxidant. And usually that lowers uh, very nicely homocysteine, okay? And then we're going to say, we're going to offer you some other things. We're going to get you to see a cognitive therapist, which is a uh, person uh, in the speech therapy, and we're going to give you some tips on how to improve your memory, how to deal with some of the cognitive difficulties. They'll see you three or four times. It's covered by Medicare, and we'll be able to uh, give you some practice tests and see if we can help you in your memory. We're going to try to get the caregivers to go to a support group. Now, in Austin, and you may have it in other cities, we have only a memory-impaired support group, not dementia. Uh, dementia we have. Those are a little bit too advanced uh, for someone with only memory loss. And so we send them, and they learn from other caregivers how to communicate, uh, how to deal with the person, and change the subject, how to prevent frustration. Because in my experience, uh, in my opinion, not 
personally, not purposely, the most common cause of an agitated patient is the caregiver, and it's not mm-hmm. intentional. It's not intentional. Yeah. It's because so of lack th- of... Go ahead. So is this group for the well, caregiver? Those are the and the glass is half full. It's mm-hmm. treatable. And we follow those people like a hawk. Now, what's the prognosis for that person? If you follow those people over the next five years, about 40% or more are going to get worse. They're going to continue to decline, and they may end up with dementia. But the good news is the other, I'm sorry, 60%, the other 40% may stay the same. So we can't tell which way it's going to go. But that, mm-hmm. in that case, that's Alzheimer's disease. But a lot of those people get diagnosed, and I'm not blaming anybody, as having probable Alzheimer's and and they're misdiagnosed, a lot of them. I'm not saying everybody. I'm just saying lots of them. That's called mild cognitive impairment, in this case probably from small strokes and maybe elevated homocysteine, but we have to we have to follow that person. So it's a positive treatment. Okay. That's what we tell them. Now, the group that you were talking about for, for memory loss, is that just for caregivers or is that a combination for the caregiver? We have both. Okay. We have a we have a support group and a respite program in Austin that is run only for memory impaired people, which is the predominant complaint. Some of them mm-hmm. may have more, but they're not very impaired from the dementia side. And so they they spend time with people at their level and the caregivers get the same time as support group. Okay. Okay. Yeah, we've we have uh just one memory cafe up here that works with both uh, the person with with early memory loss that can still you know participate in the group, and then their care partner, and um, and then there's lots of groups through the Alzheimer's Association and others. Um, some are just for the person with memory loss. Some are just for the the care partner themselves, and and others are mixed. So it's it's interesting to see how things are changing and growing and um, working together. I know our memory cafe, Jay Arthur's memory cafe, people just love it. I mean, they thank us every single time. We, we get together twice a month for for a two-hour period, and they just say, you know, it's a godsend to them because they yes. they don't have to put up any walls. They don't have to worry about anything that happens. Everything is confidential, and we've just built such a nice bond um, between people, it's it's kind of what they say their safety net, and so that's that's nice to be able to see that that's part of part of your piece as well, because I think that support piece is, you know, can make or break um, how this journey goes uh, for exactly. families as a whole. Um, want me wonderful. to give you a? Mm-hmm. You want me to give you a scenario on an Alzheimer's patient? Oh, that would be what that would... would be perfect. Yes. Okay, let me give you a much shorter scenario. So the person comes in, and all their uh, tests are out in front of me. I know from my first visit, and based on the caregiver, that they probably have dementia, which means two or more areas of impairment. Their score on their test was low, but that doesn't mean that's definitely Alzheimer's. So they come in to see me, and I go through the past where, you know, where we were last time, and I say, well, look, your MRI shows also some small strokes, a little more than they should be, say you're 70, and you have high blood pressure as well, high cholesterol, but your <clears throat> neuropsych testing, if I did order it, suggests 
that you have very impaired uh, cognitive function. And putting it all together, I suspect you probably have a combination of, uh, of small strokes, but this may very well be uh, also Alzheimer's disease. Now, if that person's 85 or 90, I don't think I would push harder to try to separate the two out because stroke dementia and Alzheimer's disease are close to connected, but one and one doesn't equal two. If you were somebody in the 60s or 70s, I would separate the two by doing a PET scan, which is a test that measures sugar uptake in the brain and certain patterns are diagnostic. And even in some cases, if they're younger, we'll do a spinal tap because we could separate Alzheimer's disease from other dementias. But let's leave that for the moment. <clears throat> so I would aggressively treat this person and say, look, the glass is half full. You could have these symptoms for a number of years. We can slow it down by putting you on uh, one of the one or two or three products, uh, one of the Aricet product or Exelon, which is the same family. We may add a little Demenda later, and we're also using a new product that's been on the market a couple of years called Axona, which is a powder uh, made up of triglycerides, which also helps brain function as well. Um, <clears throat> so we would still push exercise. We would still push good blood pressure control. We would still push respite programs and support groups for the caregiver, start them on the drugs one at a time, say Aricept or Exelon. After two months, I'd see them back and then see how they do, add an amenda maybe to the next time I see them because the person, say, is moderately impaired, and continue to watch them every three or four months, get the caregivers to fill the activities of daily living assessment sheet and find out exactly how that person is doing. I wouldn't ask the caregiver in front of the patient, well, how's your mom doing now on the treatment? And, you know, uh, things are not worse. You're not going to tell the doctor verbally. So you can't sit and ask five questions. That's not the way to get a follow-up. And so the caregiver fills out my assessment sheet again, and while they're doing that, I do my simple memory test again. And so we make Alzheimer's disease, yes, it's not a fun disease to have, but we have slow decline. Some people have, and again, there may be some stroke risk here that could be treated. So we look at it as a total package, and it's not the profit of doom. And that's the way I'd like to hear it, and that's the way I'd like my mom to hear it. And we're not telling them a fib. We're just telling them that, that you go with the, with the flow. And mm -hmm. that, to me, is, in my opinion, the best way to do it. Uh, and then you get the people calling you. You get the caregivers keeping you uh, update. Call me if you have any questions, any side effects, blah, blah, blah. So that's kind yeah. of what we do here. Yeah, I think it's so important to be um, dignified and graceful um, because this is a difficult disease for someone to get uh, get handed to on a platter. And so I, I like the way um, you seem to be very conscious in terms yes. of how people are going to, you know, deal with this. And, and it, it takes some time to process it all is what I've been told over and over and over. I know for... For our family, yes. it did. We really weren't quite sure what hit us, and you know, we were misdiagnosed yes. originally. It was just a hormone thing, and and then all of a right. sudden, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old, and by then, we knew, you know, we were into the thick of things and and stuff. But um, 
you know, it's it, there's a lot of hope, and people people need to know this is just another disease that we need to learn how to live with, not to live as, but to live to live with it, and um, not to lose our relationships, which I think is the the biggest thing that most care partners and, and caregivers, family members, and friends really struggle with is now they're a caregiver and they're not a, a wife or a husband or a daughter. They they kind of switch roles without even knowing it, and they lose that, uh, a lot of times, intimacy and the connection and the fun part of their relationship. And there really does need to be balance with that so that people don't lose the core of their relationship. And it sounds like you're very supportive in that in that process. Um, so can you, you know, talk to us in terms of, you know, the treatments that are out there? You know, are they really going to help? If so, for how long? People ask this all the time. And, um, you know, what are your thoughts on a, a true cure coming down the road here? Well, I mentioned to you the treatment is multidiscipline, and I already went through uh, the basics such as exercise, and, and it's very important. We're not, we don't have a cure for this disease. I don't think we're going to see a cure in a long, long time. I can't give you a date. But everything that we have right now slows decline. And the reason a lot of people don't see that is because the particularly physicians are not following these patients with activities of daily living assessment. The pharmaceutical industry had to prove to the FDA, that these drugs were doing something. And, yes, they weren't curing people, but they're slowing decline. We've seen that in every study, and you could say, well, they're biased because it's the pharmaceutical. But there's been a lot of meta-analysis by independent people. And I was not a believer early on in the 90s because I didn't see anything that was any better. But I think it's important that we know that you tell people that's the truth. You probably won't get better with any of these treatments, which may be different. Sometimes there's a fluke, but you don't want to say that. So people automatically, they realize we're not going to cure it. But you tell them, and the truth is, it slows decline. And so if you combine any one of the acetylcholinesterase drugs, which is Aricept, um, Exelon patch, or uh, Galantamine, which have been around for now 15 years, and as the disease gets a bit worse, adnaminda, both of those products will slow decline anywhere from two to three years. Now, how do you know that? Well, because we know that from activities of daily living and assessment. If a, if a patient comes in and the caregiver says, oh, this is the worst three months I've ever had. Why? Because mom is seeing things and hearing things and hallucinating. So if there was anything good about that three months, you'd never know. They're only telling mm-hmm. you what's the things. So you look at the ADL sheet that they filled out, and there wasn't much difference than three or four months ago, but the big problem was there was a change in behavior. So we need to fix the behavior problem with appropriate medicine, and those people can still march along pretty well. But if you don't take the time to evaluate that, you're not going to know. And what happens is, oh, we're going to stop this drug, and let me put you on a different one. There's no evidence that in the course of the disease, that makes any difference. Now, side effects are different. If you get nausea and vomiting or sick, of course, if that's medicine-related, you have to change it, but not because 
oh, somebody isn't responding, so let's add another drug. There's no data that has pointed to that. So um, the bottom line is we can slow decline, okay? Mm -hmm. That's the best you can tell people, and it's real. But we also include the exercise, blood pressure control, whatever else, try to decrease the risks of other diseases. If a person has a sleep disorder, which is common in Alzheimer's too, some of those people have uh, have a sleep apnea. If we can get mm-hmm. that treated. So it's a multidiscipline approach. All the research now is going into the early pre-symptomatic stage. In other words, when can we really diagnose this disease, which begins in the 30s probably, and more evidence is showing that by the age 40 and 50, there's lots of amyloid in the brain, but we're still trying to learn that. And we don't have a treatment for it. So we still don't have the guidelines of screening. We still don't have a treatment for those patients that may have no symptoms. Uh, and, and hopefully that will end down the road in the next five years maybe, that if we can get rid of all that stuff in the brain with medicine before the person gets symptoms, then that would be great. Maybe we could arrest and prevent it from curing. But we're not there yet. But what about those people that already have the disease? And that's a big part. You know, they talk about 5 million. I think there's more than that. If you add all the people with MCI who just have a memory disorder, and if you follow them for seven years, 60% of those people develop dementia too, and those parts are not even included. So we have lots of people out there who are risk factors and have memory, but not everybody has it, of course. So we have to be as, as, uh, you know, as uh, I guess you could say optimistic as we can. But we don't, there's no magic bullet. There's a couple new things coming down the pipeline. Gamma globulin has been recently presented for middle-stage Alzheimer. The jury's still out on it. We may be using that for treatment. There's another product out of the Netherlands called Suvenade, which is an antioxidant. There's some evidence that it may be working in slow decline. The Axona, which I mentioned to you, is a triglyceride, and it's a powder. We have evidence that may help slow decline. So we use all those different medicines available, plus communication with the caregivers to do the best we can. But we got to take care of the folks that have it now and also the people who are going to get the disease in the next 5, 10 years because we're not able to stop it right now. That may not be till another 10 years. I don't have any idea. It's just a slow yeah. process. Yeah, I know that... Um you know the the belief out there is you know that this disease acts fairly quickly and you know seven years you know for a decline and things and you know what do you say to like my mom who I mean we noticed memory problems for over thirty years with her and she's been in her end stages for for four um, where she I mean she can't do anything for herself she's wheelchair bound she has to be fed she's totally incontinent for the for the last four years, um, you know, she's just off. Excuse she's me. She's had dementia for years. Yeah, she she started oh, having memory problems in her mid fifties, and you know, we tried to get her her diagnosed back then, and it was very strange because, you know, back then no one really talked about Alzheimer's disease, and for whatever reason, um, and and internet wasn't all that active back then. My mom always said she had Alzheimer's disease. And uh, but it wasn't until you know later in life she was probably oh gosh let's see she started having problems in her mid fifties in her sixties I guess was when she actually got 
diagnosed. And, um, you know, she's going to be 84 now this this year. And so it's yes. been a really long, long process. But I, I know for her, you know, she got real withdrawn and um, just kind of shut in and was, I think, probably depressed in the beginning. And I know that there's a real fine line between those. And some will say, well, you know, she couldn't have Alzheimer's or dementia and have it that long. But I'm hearing more and more people with stories like my mom. Any thoughts? Well, all I can say is there is a a differential diagnosis of dementia, and Alzheimer's is not the only one. One of the ones Mm -hmm. that's becoming common and more recognized is the frontal temporal dementias, They used to consider those rare, but it's not rare. It's probably the second or third most common cause of dementia, uh, perhaps behind Lewy body dementia, which is a Parkinson disorder. And it's very hard to separate Alzheimer's from frontal temporal dementia, and they Mm -hmm. behave differently. And the difference is that frontal temporal has no treatment. So if you misdiagnose somebody as Alzheimer's and they have frontal dementia, all those medicines you're giving them for Aricept and all that doesn't work and you misdiagnose them. And their course and their prognosis is a lot different than Alzheimer. And we're seeing a lot more people that are getting diagnosed with Alzheimer that turn out to have frontal dementia because frontal dementia is, is becoming very common. So mm-hmm. how we're doing that is we're doing more tests on Alzheimer patients beyond just the MRI and CAT scan. We are doing the PET scan, which is very helpful in separating them, and look at the spinal fluid because that will separate. So it's really important to have the right diagnosis. I don't Mm -hmm. know what your mom has, and I'm not saying she had frontal dementia, but uh, there's other causes of dementia besides Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, and, uh, you know, one of the things is we have, my mom is still alive, and, um, you know, we have signed her up for a study, um, you know, so her brain will be diagnosed and I don't know if they'll be able to tell us more information then, but I, that's something I really encourage people to get involved with. I, you know, they need the scientists need the information, um, you know, yes. from us. And so I've signed my, myself up and my mom both um, when the time comes because, you know, they they need all of our brains to to really be able to analyze this thing. And I know that's not everybody's cup of tea, but I just think that it's a very important thing to do. And that for me, I need to walk my talk in terms of being out there <laughs> and doing everything yes. I can to, to make a difference there. But um, you know, I, it's it's been an interesting journey. You know, no matter how how you slice it, and um, you know, for myself personally, it's brought me much closer. It's it's made me, I think, a better person because I'm more attentive. And I notice um, things that I probably wouldn't have noticed before because she's unable to communicate. And so there's really, you know, if you really want to look at this with a broad mind, there's a lot of gifts that come with this disease if you choose to look at them like that. Things that can really enhance your life, you know, um, like they have mine. And again, I would I wouldn't sign up for the disease. I wouldn't sign up for anyone I love for the disease, or even anybody that I didn't really care for that much. Um, but it's all in attitude in terms of how you're going to tackle this disease, and if you're going to let it defeat you, or if you're going to be proactive and do some of the recommendations, like you said, um, 
And I think that that's that's very very important. How do people get a hold of you um, and and get your book? Well, my book is available uh, on Amazon. Uh, uh, website under the books if you look under uh, memory loss um better to use my name uh, Ronald Devere it's D E V E R E um and uh, it'll come up there as a book and it's fairly reasonably priced we also sell them in our office but Amazon would be the best source um we have an office number uh, I don't use an email very much in my practice uh for uh communication with patients and but we have an office number. Anybody feel free to call us anytime. If we don't call you, pick it up right away, and I will certainly return calls all the time. Uh, as my practice, I have my phone available and my cell phone on my uh, answering machine because I don't do any hospital work anymore. So I am always uh, can talk to anybody anytime within reason. Um, I can give you that number if you're interested. Sure. And then you also have a website, too, that people um Yeah, well we a- have a website called uh, yeah, you can you want to mention it, Lori? Yeah, it's admdclinic.com. That's AD for Alzheimer's disease, MD. Um and then clinic.com. Yeah, it gives a little information about us. It also has the book there that'll take you to Amazon if you're interested in purchasing it. Purchasing, I think it's like Twelve or fifteen dollars—it's uh, fairly uh, inexpensive. But what again? I'm not here to push my book, but it's user-friendly. There are lots of simple cases from patients in my practice. Of course, their names are not divulged, and go through all the things that you may want to know. What does a PET scan look like? What does an MRI look like? What does a brainwave test look like? Why do we do brainwave tests in disorders of memory? And there are a lot of little things that, uh, and you know. What what are the things we can do to keep our brain active? Uh, so those are all easily done there, and if they, people can call me if they have any questions anytime. Wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for your time today. Was there was there anything else? We've got about um, ten minutes left. Is there anything else that you would like to um, to share with our audience? Otherwise, I'll go ahead and close the show. Yes. Uh, well, again, my, my main uh, point is, one, if your memory isn't doing the job, have it checked. In my opinion, the and I'm not being belittling family physicians, they're very important, but they take time. This is a time uh, test and evaluation. I think, the most, I think the people that are most likely to spend the most time are usually geriatricians, uh, neurologists, and geriatric psychiatrists. I believe those are the ones that are going to give you the most time in a visit. Uh, that doesn't mean your family doctor internist is not good. It's just that uh, you can't make a diagnosis in 15 minutes. If they refer you to somebody else, that's fine. But it, not everybody is that way, I'm just saying. So that would be important. Have it checked. And it uh, doesn't matter whether uh, you think it's old age or not. Don't be afraid of Alzheimer's disease because if Forty percent of people who go to see a doctor for memory loss, if it's your family, don't have anything to do with Alzheimer's, actually. Uh, so that should be a little bit of uh, less worry for you. But why is it there? Even if it is MCI, which is that memory, it's treatable. And mm-hmm. if you're going to get Alzheimer's, it may take six or seven years to do that. And by then, we may have something treatable. So I think that's the key. Don't be afraid of 
seeing somebody if your memory is a problem. Uh, and everything, in my opinion, is treatable. Not everything's curable, but lots of stuff is treatable. And remember, the glass is half full. It's not half empty. I like that philosophy. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today, Dr. DeVere. And again, I really okay. encourage people to go grab his book, Memory Loss, Everything You Want to Know But Forgot to Ask. And uh, again, we'll have information for you uh, to be able to contact him. I'll go ahead and post that on the blog and, and push that out afterwards. So have a wonderful okay. holiday. And again, thank and you so you, much Lori, for joining us. Thanks a lot for allowing me to be on the and best best to, to everybody listening. Okay, thank you. Bye now. I'm going to go ahead and just wrap up the show. I want to invite everyone to join our dementia chats. And normally we do that on the second and fourth Tuesday. But given the holiday, we are going to be doing dementia chats, which is our webinar series, on December 27th at 2 p.m. Central Time. And again, I'll be posting information um, regarding that. Uh, on the 19th, which is just this Wednesday, I'm also going to have a special show um, on dementia care culture. And we are going to have some wonderful guests from around the world. And I'm not disclosing who all is going to be with us, but it's going to be, I, I think, a really fascinating show. And I, I um, encourage you all to join us. Again, that will be from 10 to 12 Central Time. And uh, you can look right on the, the Alzheimer's Speaks um, radio show page, and that will just pop right up for you. I also want to thank Alzheimer's Disease International and um, Access to Patients, um, which is known as DontForgetAlzheimer's.com. They are just a couple of companies that are really working to shift our dementia care um, from crisis to comfort around the world. ADI, or Alzheimer's Disease International, um, is a place where you can find any Alzheimer's association around the world. So please feel free to tap into them. Until the next time, focus on progress, um, not perfection, when you're engaging with someone with dementia. And remember the three simple little tips that your memory chip teaches you. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? And you can get your free memory chip along with other tools and lots of information at the alzheimerspeaks.com website. So until next time, we will talk soon and enjoy your holiday season. Bye now. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond, I also have my mini-podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform. <laughs>